Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, July 31st, 2019 edition of our little weather get together. Tonight is show number 286. And tonight we're going to be talking about 25 years later after the U.S. Air Flight 1016 uh, had a tra tragic accident just outside of the Charlotte Douglas Airport. We have on with us tonight Nate Mortabito. He is investigative reporter with WCNC in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as our good friend, Chief Meteorologist Brad Panovich, also uh, WCNC in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're going to be joining us tonight. Nate did a, a very uh, well done documentary that we're going to link onto our show so you can check that out. But we're going to talk about Nate. Uh, with him about uh, this interview that he uh, has conducted with several of the uh, the families affected by this accident and, and what happened from the accident, what's come from uh, the improvements there at the airport. So we're excited to talk about that, uh, but we do want to start off with the show. Uh, we do have a few uh, flash flood warnings out right now for the Carolinas. We have a flash flood warning out for Guilford, Relaford and Henderson counties all in North Carolina and we have a severe thunderstorm warning out for Allendale, Jasper and Hampton counties in South Carolina. So we're going to be scrolling those warnings on the side of the screen as well as radar so you can keep up with the latest on the weather information and towards the end of the show uh, we'll do our weather roundup and talk about all the active weather and the active weather to come so we hope you'll stick around. Uh, I do want to mention this is a live broadcast so we'd love for you to interact with us tonight. We're right now streaming on Facebook Live Periscope, YouTube, and Twitch. You can also listen to us on your favorite podcast, uh, download uh, app service, uh, wherever you like to get your podcast from. We're there. You can find us and listen to the show. So before we get into tonight's show, I want to toss it over to our panelist, Chris Jackson. Chris, uh, you have uh, brought on a special guest with us tonight. You're going to be participating in a really cool uh, conference coming up in the next couple of months. And I know you and Aubrey uh, are part of this. So talk to us about uh, what's going on up there. Yeah, absolutely, Scotty. So coming up on uh, October 26th up in uh, Richmond, Virginia, is going to be the uh, Mid-Atlantic ChaserCon. And uh, I've been asked to come up and take part in a little group discussion uh, panel discussion about some of the, the, the good things and bad things about storm chasing and storm spotting. So if you're really interested about, uh, you know, storm chasing and things of that nature, maybe something you want to throw on your calendar and uh, to, to help uh, tell a little bit more about what's going to be going on. We have on with us tonight, uh, Aubrey Abranowitz uh, from WHSV in Shenandoah Valley. She's actually on the, I believe the planning committee and she's also a weather brains panelist. So uh, yeah, Aubrey, tell us, tell us a little bit about it. Well, thanks, Chris, and thanks, guys, for having me on. So the Mid-Atlantic ChaserCon, this is our second year of having this storm conference. This is actually kind of the brainchild of Chris White, uh, who's a storm chaser down at our sister station, or he kind of partners with our sister station in the Roanoke area. So he's pretty familiar with storm chasing in Virginia and the Virginia Piedmont, especially. Um, we don't do a whole lot of storm chasing in the Shenandoah Valley. It's not exactly um, the favorite region, but in the Piedmont and some of the flatter land area where we have a little bit more fields, um, it, it is a little bit better for storm chasing. So he wanted to basically not only bring more severe wet, uh, weather awareness to uh, storm spotters, storm chasers, but also bring together the community between the spotters, the chasers, the weather observers, the National Weather Service forecasters, and of course, the broadcasters, because, you know, I think we all see it on social media you know, when we get the reports in as the broadcaster, my first thought when I see a picture, you know, of possibly a tornado, you know, what tends to be a scud cloud a lot of times is I don't know this person. I'm not sure their location. 
I need to verify this information. But if we build those relationships between the National Weather Service forecasters, the officers, and the broadcasters, the media, us in the media, and our storm chasers, storm spotters, then we don't have to worry about verifying so much because we already have those relationships with these people. So I think it's important to really build those relationships all together. Uh, and then also the big push this year is to also kind of incorporate our emergency management community. So the Virginia Department of, Mer of Emergency Management is going to have a table at the conference and we're really excited about it. So last year we had David Hoadley, which if you're a weather nerd, you might have heard his name because he's kind of one of the veteran storm chasers. Uh, we had uh, Catherine Prosiv. We had Brent Watts do their speaking, and it was a great, great conference. And this year, we've got some really great uh, speakers coming along. We've got Dr. John Scala, who is also part of Weather Brains. We've got Brad Panovich, who you're going to have on uh, tonight. We've got Howard Bernstein uh, from the D.C. area talking about D.C. tornadoes and I believe the La Plata tornado uh, from the early 2000s. And uh, we'll have the panel that uh, Chris is going to be on. So, of course, Mr. South Carolina is going to grace us with his presence. And uh, maybe he'll be signing some autographs and taking some photos as well, since I know we've got <laughs> a lot of Carolina fans here. So we're kind of appealing to your audience because this is part of the, the Mid-Atlantic and part of the Southeast. You know, we had people come from the Carolinas last year, come from the Northeast, from Pennsylvania. So this is turning into kind of a regional thing. Um, and this is uh, a really exciting event to bring everyone together. And for our broadcasters, if you have an NWA seal or an AMS seal, you do earn credit for the conference. That's some great information, Aubrey. Thank you uh, for joining us and, and letting us know about it. I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing a little bit more about it. Maybe we can have you on a couple of uh, weeks from now and kind of uh, continue to talk about this conference. And uh, looking forward to it. I'm going to try to get up there with Chris as uh, as he talks. But uh, we appreciate uh, you joining in and, and telling us about it, Aubrey. Yeah, and I have one more thing. So tickets, I think they're $20 right now, and they go up in price after August 15th. So you want to go ahead and sign up. Just Google search Mid-Atlantic uh, ChaserCon, and you can get the link and find out all of our good speakers and find out all about it. So before the tickets start to go up in price on August 15th. And also what we're going to do this year is we're doing a mixer on Friday night. So for any storm chasers, storm spotters, you can bring your videos and your pictures to share. We've got a laptop and a projector and you can share all your good storm stories and your your chases. All right, that sounds great. Well, Aubrey, we appreciate it. And like I said, we'll, we'll have you back on uh, closer to the event to, to kind of uh, give us a, another update about what's going to be taking place up, uh, I think it's a, uh, up there in Richmond. And I yep. think that I'm going to be uh, trying to get up there with Chris. So uh, we'd love to see some of our Carolina folk up there as well. So Aubrey, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And thanks for uh, letting me share. No problem. Thank you very much. Well, right. James, I'm going to toss it to you sure. because I know we're going to be uh, rolling some video here uh, in the next little bit. But uh, we, if you're originally watching the show tonight, we were supposed to have Mark Suddeth on. And uh, Mark is in Oklahoma doing some uh, testing with some of his new equipment for hurricane season. So, James, we were scrambling and you brought up the idea in our little internal group chat. And we're like, oh, yeah, let's talk about that. So 
I'll toss the ball off to you and kind of let you uh, direct us from there. Yeah, I anticipate a really good conversation, uh, Scotty, and I didn't have to go very far. I walked across the office during the day to bring on my dayside colleague. Um, Nathan's going to talk to us in just a moment. Uh, I want to start by kind of setting the scene, and I'm going to let him do that as well here, too. Uh, he produced a documentary earlier this month for WCNC Television here in Charlotte, North Carolina, the Techno-owned NBC affiliate. And Scotty and I were talking, and when we took a look at this documentary, we realized even as weather geeks – this provided a backstory that we were crucially missing. So you may already know at home, or maybe you don't, uh, that Charlotte has what they call a terminal Doppler radar, and it's used primarily for airport operations, and we'll get a little bit into that. But we knew that the reason that came about was because of a plane crash, but I had never really thought much about it beyond that. Well, Nathan has a lot of those answers because he dug into them for a documentary that is available now on the WCNC NBC Charlotte YouTube channel, and we want to show you just a short portion of it. It was a hot, sunny day. Well, it was a hot day. It was summertime, hot. When we were cruising at altitude, it was clear blue sky. all of a sudden you see it's raining and it's dark. Everyone noticed the, the blue sky was replaced with, with darkness. Tremendous amount of rain, uh, winds that uh, could be over 100 miles an hour. pilots got lulled into a situation where because they could see the airport, they really didn't factor in the severity of the weather. The air traffic controllers didn't really see what the crew was seeing on the airplane. And because of that lack of information, that may have been the difference in getting the crew to abort the landing sooner rather than later. And joining us now, the creator and reporter behind this documentary, Nathan Morbido, who is on WCNC's Defenders team, the investigative team at the uh, station. Nathan, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you taking time. Uh, just tell us a little bit here as we continue to, to set the picture for people at home. Why did you think this was an important story to tell? Well, thank you all for having me, number one. So I was, gosh, in 1994, I was 13 years old, and I was here in Charlotte, growing up in South Charlotte. And I remember one weekend, a plane crash on the news, actually on WCNC, where I now work. And I remember being glued to this story because it seemed like the weather wasn't great that day. And this plane essentially crashed into a neighborhood, into a home, and into three different pieces. So this was always with me, like this, this whole story, it's from my youth, you know? And I, I was always traveling up to upstate New York, from Charlotte flying to visit my family up there. And so as a little kid, it just always kind of interested me. So anyways, fast forward to uh, really last year, we started kind of thinking about ideas for stories and we realized that this was gonna be the 25th year anniversary of Flight 1016. And it seemed especially important 
to our viewing area because this is a totally Carolina story. This is, impacts people mostly who perished from Columbia, where the flight originated, and then, of course, Charlotte, where the plane eventually crashed. And so it just really got us interested because it seemed to me, number one, such an important part of Charlotte's history. And then I would later learn, uh, after talking to our executive producer, Ned Hibbard, that this was actually a major part of aviation history. So we started kind of trying to put the pieces together and we reached out to our sister station in Columbia, WLTX, who helped gather some of the interviews as well. And everything that we, we were able to obtain just seemed too good to just put in a two and a half minute story for the news. And it's so, too important really, because as you all know, like Charlotte has grown so much, people have come and gone. And we really thought that number one, the survivor stories needed to be told, uh, the people who passed away, their stories needed to be told. And then finally, what need, maybe most important out of all of this is what is going to be done in the future and what has been done since to make sure this never happens again. So. When I talked to the, the families that were on this plane, we know that when, when this plane left Columbia, which is obviously just a short drive away from Charlotte, let alone flight, that the weather was great. I mean, it was a hot, typical Columbia summer day. Uh, they left, everyone was in a fine mood. And as they kind of started their approach to Charlotte, everything seemed normal. The pilots started the, you know, the normal descent announcement, you know, make sure you stay buckled as they prepare to land. And that's when it got really dark really quickly. And then the rain started coming and the rain started pounding the windows uh, almost sideways. And what, what they later realized and they didn't know in the moment is they were in the midst of a microburst. The pirates, uh, according to the NTSB investigator that handled this, this crash, said that the pilots could see the airport. So since they could see the airport, they kind of were lulled into complacency that they felt like this could be a normal landing. And they were so low to the ground at that point, as you can imagine, because they're trying to land, that once they realized they're in the microburst, even though they tried to get out of it and increase their altitude, there was really no getting out of it. The wind coming down was just too strong. Uh, obviously, the heavy rain was involved there, and it was all very quick. And the biggest takeaway from all of this is that while the viewers on television, if they were tuning in and if the news was on at that moment, uh, which it would have been because it would have been six o'clock 6 43 it probably was just wrapping up actually what would have happened is you would have seen the radar because the tv stations in the region had the the doppler radar and i guess if the control tower was watching the news they would have seen the radar as well but what was missing in the control tower at charlotte douglas airport and so many other airports across the country was doppler radar so they really couldn't properly communicate what was happening they couldn't tell the pilots what was above them because they just didn't have it in front of them. And of course, because of this crash, that all changed. But in the process, 37 people died. And when you think about a plane crash, there were 57 people on board. And if there's any kind of silver lining from all of this, it's that 20 other people survived. And when you talk to the federal investigator, what's especially critical to him is that the entire flight crew survived because then they could put together exactly what happened. They could talk to the survivors, they could talk to the pilot, and they could talk to everyone else on the crew to find out what happened and really piece together this massive report that detailed so many mistakes along the way. But at the end of the day, uh, Greg Feith, who is the former investigator on this case, said it, it really all came down to that Doppler radar missing link. If they were able to communicate what they could see on the radar, 
if they had the radar, perhaps the pilots could have either aborted their landing sooner, kind of gone around sooner, or kind of avoided the area for a little bit. Very good, very good. So tell me, um, tell me, what were the lasting impacts from this event? And maybe you touched on it a little bit. Some of those changes that were made at the airports across the Carolinas from this event. Tell us a little more about that. Well, let me let me start with something that I think impacts everyone, and that's like when when you're on a plane and you think about a plane crashing. I generally don't think the chances of surviving are that great, right? It's like a fear of anyone. If the plane goes down, will I survive it? And there were some very small children on this plane. Uh, we interviewed one of them, actually. She was about 18 months at the time. She doesn't remember any of it, uh, but she survived, and she wasn't buckled in at the time. I mean, she was in, like, in the middle seat next to her mother. Think about this. There wasn't even really internet back then, let alone requirements to have kids buckled in on the airplane. But there was also another kid on the airplane that was probably just a little bit younger that died. And really there, there was no rhyme or reason to who survived and who didn't. I mean, there were, there were a lot of people that just kind of moved seats and certain seats, people died and you could be right next to someone, someone survived and another person died. And so I think that was a big, big impact of this crash is that the survivability aspect, uh, the industry was able to kind of figure out ways to make sure and, and to improve seatbelt usage and to improve um, kind of the infrastructure of an airplane. So if it does crash, uh, your chances are, are much better at surviving. And when you think about a plane crash too, number one, you have kind of this, this loss of cabin pressure, right? You're going down quickly, so the oxygen issue. You also have the actual crash impact, which is another way you can die. And then there's the explosion afterwards, which is the third way you can die. And from reading the report, there were people really impacted by all three of those things. And, and even the survive, people that did survive just have lasting physical injuries uh, because of it. And of course, we know so many people died, 37 people. That's the majority of the people on the plane. So that's number one. On the broader scale that impacts all of us, it really is this weather issue. And you know, I was talking to Larry Sprinkle, NBC Charlotte uh, weatherman, who just couldn't get over the response nationally, the attention that this plane crash brought specific to weather. Because all of a sudden you had people like Dr. Fujita, uh, who kind of created the scale, right, for tornadoes and, and wind, coming to, to Charlotte to try to get a better understanding of what happened in this case. You had national news outlets putting pressure as to why the radar wasn't there. And really even kind of questioning the TV stations. Why, weren't you, why wouldn't you provide this information to the control tower? And because of this, Congress fast-tracked this Doppler radar technology and control towers across the country so that really a pilot can't fly blind anymore because that's kind of what was happening. You could see what was going on in front of you, but you couldn't see what was going on above you. And if you can imagine the way Larry Sprinkle put it to me, once you're in it, you can't get out of it. And you all would know better than I would. Once you're in this, in this kind of uh, microburst and the wind is just bearing down an airplane, how in the world, and you're so low to the ground already, how in the world can you pull out of that? Yeah, you got a great point. And I, I just want to, uh, you know, back it up a little bit and switch gears just a little bit and bring Brad in here uh, since he joined us. And, and maybe Brad can explain to a lot of the folks at home just basically what is a microburst and, and how does it form it and what is its, uh, you know, mesoscope's its local effects on folks. Yeah, you know, microburst, especially in the Carolinas, is probably the number one form of severe weather that we get in the Carolinas in the summertime and they're isolated you know microburst is essentially a downburst of wind 
coming out of the storm directly to the ground. And when it hits the ground, it fans out in all directions. And what people don't realize is, you know, we get a lot of wind damage around here and people immediately go tornado, tornado, tornado. And I would say nine out of 10 of these uh, events that we get damage around here, it's a microburst. And especially in the summer, it's these wet microbursts, which are full of rain. Um, and these things can have winds up to 150 miles an hour. I mean, and they are a huge hazard to aviation because as Nathan was just talking about, uh, once you're in it, it forces the plane to the ground. There's not enough power that you can generate, especially when you're landing or taking off to get out of these things. Um, they have about a two and a half uh, square mile area, two and a half kilometers roughly um, area, because that's what gets the microburst name because of the size. If it's a larger area, it's called a macroburst. But really any heavy downpour or any you know uh, cumulus cloud that's developing with a rain shaft has the potential to produce one of these. And especially when we have dry air in the mid-levels or cold air aloft, that cold air is heavy and dense and it wants to come crashing back to the ground. Um, and they're really, really dangerous to, to, to pilots on takeoff and landing. And it, it's interesting to hear Nathan talk about the story here. And um, this it, is long before I got here, but I worked in a previous market in New Orleans and people remember there was a similar crash in 1989 or 88 down there. Uh, where a plane crashed on the levee down there outside of New Orleans airport, same kind of thing. Um, it, it's amazing to think about before we started thinking about the advent of Doppler radar and the ability to get this data, uh, planes were crashing often because of these microbursts at airports. Yeah, that's uh, you bring up some really good points, and, and especially with the, the advent of aviation technology as, as time's going forward, not just with uh, radar sites at airports, but also onboard radar systems on aircraft. And, and I'll bring in Ricky here to talk a little bit more about that, because uh, uh, like I, Ricky enjoys flying uh, small airplanes uh, for leisure. And, uh, you know, talk about some of the effects on wind shear with aviation, Ricky. First thing you got to consider is the type of airplane, right? So you got a large airliner, that's a large wing surface area. And just think of it like with a downburst pushing down on that airplane. It's basically what the wind is doing. So as the airplane's on final approach speed, it's coming in maybe 160, 170 miles per hour, depending on the type of airplane once again. So you're already at a slower than normal flight speed, a slower kind of more unstable almost flight speed. And as you enter this downburst, think of it like a, a big almost upside down U shape here uh, with the wind coming out one direction, the wind coming out the other side direction and fanning out all around. As you enter that downburst, it's kind of odd because your speed is actually going to increase just a little bit. So you're coming in, let's say like at 80 knots, uh, you're actually going to experience a little bit of that turbulence and then that increase in your airspeed. That's a little bit uh, of a bad thing though, because as you get that increase in airspeed, likely what's going to happen is the aircraft's going to climb a little bit. Then as you hit more of the downdraft and the horizontal winds coming through, you encounter the different types of wind shear. And as a result, now you're not getting so much wind on the front of the airplane, but now you're getting it on the tail of the airplane. And as that happens, you push down the tail of the airplane, what happens is the nose of the airplane goes up and that causes a higher angle of attack or what we call alpha in aviation. So as that happens, now your engine is basically fighting to climb you up while something is trying to push down on the aircraft at the same time, that's going to lower your airspeed and you're likely going to get into a stall situation. So you kind of go from the aircraft being almost overspeed or faster than it should be traveling to now way under what it should be traveling. And stalls, pilots practice stall recovery all the time. When you go through airline training, whether you're doing a private pilot license, whether you're doing commercial license, all the way up to airline pilot licenses, you're always practicing stalls and it's something uh, you practice in both the power on and power off, takeoff and landing positions. But when you get into a stall, 
a lot of times when you're practicing these things, you're doing it at a couple thousand feet up. You got altitude under your recover. When you're doing it, you encounter a stall at 300, 400 feet on approach to an airport. Uh, Chris, as you very well know, there's not going to be a whole lot of time to recover that aircraft. No, no. If you if you don't have if you don't have the aircraft configured in a way to give you the maximum performance that you need, especially when you're on short final and you, you're getting into that real critical stage of flight, and, and something you know extreme like that happens, unless you make you know rapid movements and do all the right things necessary, uh, things could not turn out the way you hoped for them to be. And, you know, that's why it's so, so critical to, to have good weather information. And especially uh, with the airports, like I said, these days, and, and also aviation. Uh, coming up in 2020, there's a mandate that will require all, all aircraft to have ADS-B technology. And that's going to allow, you know, the smallest Cessna or the, the biggest, you know, 777, A380 in the sky, for the pilots to get live weather information all the time. And so that's gonna you know, just add to the, uh, the protection in place to uh, you know, make sure pilots don't encounter these, these, these uh, bad weather events, especially during such critical phases of flight. And if I could jump in there for just a second, I actually want to talk a little bit not only about the regulations that are coming, Chris, as you mentioned, but the ones that were in place at the time. And I'm going to read off screen a little bit from that NTSB report that was put together after this uh, crash in particular. So just to set the picture here, 25 years ago, we think of the Doppler radar network we have now at the time, 90 of 162 radars were being set up in the process of being set up nationwide, but only 10 radars were functional on the day of the crash, one of those being the one in Columbia, the WSD-88R radar, which, as we know from talking on the show previously, is 77 nautical miles away from the runway. Um, and uh, what this crash ultimately led to, if you are just joining us, was the federal government, Congress, fast-tracking a terminal Doppler radar here in the Charlotte area, which was not operational at the time of the crash. Reading a little bit more here from the report, all uh, 47 airports identified to receive terminal Doppler radars were to be implemented by December of 1995, but the FAA was behind due to finding land for the site here in Charlotte. So they went from being fifth in line to being way further down the list to being 38th in line. So instead of finishing by March of 1993, which uh, Nathan, if I'm not mistaken, Mistaken would have been before the crash. They didn't get this thing installed until 1995. Is that right? I think Nathan may be shaking his head there. Um, I'm shaking my head. Yeah, 1994 is when the crash occurred. Yeah. Um, Brad, can you explain in, in layman terms <laughs> the Doppler radar, the terminal Doppler radar that we have is, is helpful, but it's not <laughs> perfect? Yeah, the, the, the terminal Doppler radars were implemented and installed for this exact reason, to basically cover the airport for microburst and wind shear detection. Uh, they're not really great at detecting precipitation, per se, because they're small C-band radars, which is a frequency of radar that's a little weaker than the S-band radars that we think about at the uh, Doppler radar sites, um, the, the 88Ds, which are at Greenville, Spartanburg, Columbia, Raleigh, and Blacksburg. Um, so what happens is they have what some, they go through something called attenuation. If you think about, um, if you have satellite TV, you've dealt with rain fade, trying to get your satellite TV when you have a heavy storm over your house. Well, 
these smaller radars, these C-bands, are very susceptible to rain fade, attenuation. If there's a storm over the radar site or near it, the beam is not strong enough, the frequency is not um, at the level that it can penetrate that rain. So oftentimes when there's something over the radar, you can't see anything beyond it. Um, but they are really, really good at detecting wind shear. And even the terminal Doppler over the Charlotte area, um, I, and in some cases, I think does a better job of detecting small microbursts and small wind shifts in the Charlotte metro area than the 88D down in uh, Greenville-Spartanburg. The problem is um, we have some beam blockage with the radar in the northwest quadrant. I think it's like in the 270, 280-ish um, radial. Um, there's actually a communication tower that is software blocked by the radar. Um, and it's not dual pole like the current 88Ds are, and it's very weak. So, um, and as we were hearing tonight, this was intentionally, uh, these radars were intended, or I should say, for the FAA to detect wind shear. They really weren't meant for weather reconnaissance um, for the weather service, but it's being used that way now to help kind of band-aid approach cover the Charlotte uh, area and most of the Piedmont, which is in a huge radar hole for the 88Ds, which is a whole story we can get into. <laughs> and you kind of just made that perfectly, Brad, because that was where we wanted to go next, was this whole radar hole that we have across a large part of Western North Carolina. You are involved with, with another local weather group trying to fix that hole and try to bring, in addition to local media stations that are in the Charlotte market, uh, a better coverage of radars to the area. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, this is um this has been going on since the mid 1990s, which is kind of ironic that we're talking about this plane crash because that's when we lost the Doppler radar at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport. Um, the National Weather Service reorganized in the in the early to mid 90s, and um, due to political reasons, because of uh, two powerful senators, one in South Carolina and one North Carolina. Um, and none of them being from the Charlotte area. <laughs> they relocated the Weather Service offices and Doppler radars in different locations. So think about this. In North Carolina, we know what a huge state it is. There are three Doppler radar sites in the state of North Carolina. All of them, all three of them are on or east of I-95. Okay. That means the western two-thirds of North Carolina, there are exactly zero Doppler radars in the state of North Carolina. South Carolina, which is a much smaller state and from population and geographic wise from a, a aerial extent, has three radars, one in Greenville, Spartanburg, one in Columbia, and then one between Charleston and um, Hilton Head um, down in that area. So the western part of North Carolina and really central and western North Carolina it has to be covered by radars in Raleigh, a radar up in Roanoke, Virginia, and Greenville Spartanburg. So because those radars are so far away and the earth is curved, as the radar beam gets up to the Charlotte area and most of the Western Carolinas, the beam is looking anywhere from 6,000 feet to as high as like in the Salisbury area, it's like 13,000 feet. Um, and these, these severe weather events, wind shear, um, downburst, hail, precipitation, tornadoes all occur in the lowest part of the storm. So. Um, we have really poor coverage here. And what we've been trying to do since, I would say, the late 1990s, I think, helped start looking at this. But it really took off about 2012 with an unwarned tornado in the Charlotte metro area in the Reed Creek area. And I know Ricky knows, remembers this one very well. Um, I was actually working that night at the station covering the storm. We had a tornado uh, near the university area, UNC Charlotte. At 2.36 in the morning, I remember exactly, tornado touched down and blew two kids onto Interstate 485. Their home was completely blown in and there was no warning issued. 
Um, and lack of radar coverage was one of the reasons that uh, we were given that there wasn't coverage um, and there was no warning. Um, what was ironic was the Raleigh National Weather Service Office issued a tornado warning for Stanley County, which was their jurisdiction, which was two counties over, because one of the radar operators up there happened to be on the phone with his mom in the Charlotte area and lost the phone connection and knew there was damage occurring and issued a warning. But because he couldn't issue warnings for Mecklenburg or Cabarrus County, issued it for Stanley County. Um, so it was uh, a really interesting setup. And so that kind of brought awareness to this radar gap. And there was a push back there um, between um, back then, I'm not mistaken, this was right at the tail end of Libby Dole's um, tenure. We tried to get you know some movement through the government and nothing happened. So cut to today, um, we've actually had a, a bill passed, um, one of the first bills that President Trump actually signed was a, a law to look at this problem um, with these radars. And it basically the way the law was written was it needed the weather service had to look at uh, cities that had populations, I believe over 750,000, or it was a 500, I can't remember the exact number, but it meant cities that were large enough that didn't have a radar within 55 miles of their city center, um, the weather service was required to look at a fix. So they did, and the fix they came up with was to lower the beam height of three radars to 0.2 elevation instead of 0.5, which didn't solve the problem, but it, it basically allowed them to um, satisfy the requirements of the bill. So we kind of ran into a brick wall, and now we're working on a private-public partnership. Um, it's called the North Carolina Radar Project. Um, Eric Thomas at WBTV here in Charlotte, myself, Van Detten up at WGHP in the, the Winston-Salem High Point market, um, Chris White from the Foothills Weather Network, um, Action Network, excuse me, their new name, I got to remember that, um, and Kevin Hart Hartman up in the uh, the triad area as well. We've been presenting this, this problem and solution to possibly um, put in three C-band radars, dual-pole Doppler radars, to fill this gap using mitigation funds from Hurricane Florence, um, which we think is a possibility. But we've been presenting this to councils of governments in all three areas of the Western Carolinas to try to find funding. And we're getting probably the closest that we've ever been to getting this done that, that I actually am somewhat excited and we're gonna continue working on it. And the next step is to talk to emergency management. I'm gonna meet with some private sector people like Bank of America, Duke and Lowe's to see if we can't get money to help maintain these. And actually tomorrow, Eric and I are meeting with Barron Services to talk about radar prices. So we're getting to the point where we might actually have three radars. And the whole goal of this is to put a radar in Hickory at the Hickory Airport, a radar at the Monroe Executive Airport, and one up in the Thomasville area. Um, and these would be dual pole C-bands, a million watt radars. And we would have the data be completely public anybody would be able to access any TV station, the weather service, FAA, you at home on radar scope, um, anybody could have access to this information. And that's the key part of building this network out. No one here has a radar scope. <laughs> all, <laughs> all big fans of, of radar scope. Brad, uh, that's very exciting to hear. Uh, and I think uh, there's some optimism there, especially when you said you're getting to a point where you're so excited about this and it's something that's been in the work for a very long time. Uh, let's bring back in Nathan. So this documentary you put together as a part of the Defenders team, which aired partially on WCNC and is available now in, the entire, in its entirety on the WCNC Charlotte uh, YouTube channel. Um, 
you talked with some survivors. Miraculously, in this crash, there were survivors. What was it like talking to those people? I'm curious if you could paraphrase a little bit of what it is they shared with you, but I'm also interested in knowing as a reporter, what did you take away from those interviews and, and what will you continue to carry with you as a human being after talking to those people? So it's so so interesting to me. And like in my life, I'm always a big believer in these small little decisions we all make that lead us to wherever we go. And that's kind of what I was left with after I interviewed some of the survivors and WLTX interviewed some and listened to all of their interviews was that some of these people made decisions before that plane took off to switch seats, even even family members, a husband and wife. One one person decides to take another seat and the other one's back there talking to some people. And because she chose to change her seat, she died and he didn't. And to me, that was just such a, I don't know, it just kind of gives me kind of a shivers a little bit when you think about it, especially in, in that specific case. Uh, the man I'm talking about, his name's Paul Calvo, who's in our documentary, his wife, Phyllis, passed away. And I just thought this was such a horrible way to find out your wife had passed away. He was in a coma for about a week. And when he came out of his coma, the first thing everyone told him was that we buried your wife yesterday. So, you know, you've been out of it completely for a week. And it's the very first thing you learn is that your wife didn't survive. And then you have this, this other man, Jason Sturkey, who was on the plane with his mom and his nephew. They're, you know, they're all pretty much to kind of together and he was kind of blown back a little bit. And because of that, and his seat stayed together, essentially, because he, he stayed with his seat, he survived and they didn't like their, I guess their seats kind of came apart. And then just this mother and daughter just kind of blew me away. They were the very first people that I tried to, to interview because I knew a baby survived this airplane crash and it just was like, Wow. How does that happen? And how do you live your life after doing that? I mean, do you have survivor's guilt? Do you make decisions based on the fact that, you know, you survived and other people didn't? And Denise Tony is the girl's name. She ended up coming back to Winthrop. She's from Columbia. She came back to Winthrop to go to school. And I guess she's what, probably 26, 27 now. Uh, and she just told me that she always feels like there was some kind of purpose you know, the fact that she survived and that her mother survived too, because there was a kid that didn't survive, but that child's mother did. So, I mean, the families that were taken apart, both a mother and daughter who had just tried to go home for a last minute flight on a, on a cheap ticket, they got last minute uh, to stay with family, ended up in this plane crash. And the little girl, a flight attendant, found her after the plane crashed. And the mother couldn't see anything, but she could hear her baby screaming crying. And then, then the mother kind of realizes that you're on the ground and the flight attendant says, she's okay. She's right here. She's right here. You were in a plane crash, but she's right here. And so, yes, this little girl who can't remember any of it is kind of living with some of the impacts, but her mother, you know, had major survivor's guilt, had major PTSD, uh, you know, impacted her, her first marriage, I mean, lasting impacts. And of course, she's incredibly grateful. And she makes meaningful decisions now based on the fact she survived. But just knowing the fact that these people, uh, based on the, on the fact where they sat, and just think about that too. When you, when you get a plane ticket, like I, I like to be in the aisle, for example. So I will always buy a plane ticket 
uh, for the aisle seat unless I'm traveling with my family and then they kind of get priority a little bit and I sit wherever. But based, it really came down to where these people sat in the end of the day. The front of the plane, the flight crew all survived it. You know, and this wasn't like a plane crash where it goes kind of straight down. This is more like kind of comes in like this, right? And it kind of skids into some trees, it hits a house, uh, it breaks apart. And I think another thing that I took away from all this too is, is just kind of brings us back to the point that we're talking about this is that from the federal investigation, no plane under the same circumstances should ever crash again because there should be a warning ahead of time. And so to me, it's just, it's just so powerful to hear these people. And I hope you'll listen to it because their stories are just incredible from the, the little boys who started talking about why can't we meet Jesus, you know, just moments before the plane goes down to the, the mother that survived who can name pretty much every other person that passed away. Like, and she'll tell, well, I went to her daughter's funeral or, you know, Miss so-and-so, she was scared to fly. And that was her first flight ever. And then to consider that these people survived that plane crash and it took some time, but they actually flew again. And this is just the most interesting thing to me. Um, this woman that I interviewed, Cheryl uh, uh, Robinson, make sure I'm saying her name right. Yeah, Cheryl Robinson. She initially, Oprah wanted to interview her after this crash. Oprah, think about this, 1994, who was bigger than Oprah? And she said, I wouldn't do the interview because I would have had to fly to Chicago to do it. And I was too scared to do it. And it took time, but now she's flying. In fact, she flew just a few weeks before we sat down and did the interview with her down in South Carolina. Uh, and same uh, with some of these other folks as well. Jason Sturkey flew again as well. So I just think so much to overcome from all of this and, and these human beings that totally had to put their trust in these pilots. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the pilots has spoken previously. We reached out to, to pilot and the first mate neither would talk with us or responded. But you kind of put your faith fully in the people that are flying that airplane. And in that moment, nobody had control over what was going to happen next. They really couldn't have prevented it. I mean, there were some things they could have done potentially, but the radar wasn't there. That's the bottom line. And, and Nate, this is a tough story to tell as a reporter, because if I recall from watching the documentary on at least more than one occasion, they get a little choked up. This is still very emotional for them 25 years later. Well, as one person told me, uh, told us, this is kind of the default setting. So, uh, and I can relate to that. My father died suddenly a couple of years ago and unexpectedly. And whenever my mind is like kind of turned off, my default is thinking about the day that he died. And this is their default. They don't think about it all the time, but when they sit down and their mind kind of clears for a minute, it goes back to the plane crash. And I mean, think about, they're not talking about it all the time but it's kind of internal. And then when they, they come and talk about it for the first time in years, particularly when there's a camera in front of them, I think it was therapeutic, number one, but I also think that it allows them to kind of show the true emotion of what that impact is. I mean, you just can't put into words what these people went through. And this is just a fraction of the people that survived, but I mean, only 20, what did I say, 20 people survived? And we interviewed four of them. So that's, you know, what, 20% of the people that survived that. And just to hear the fact that they, they almost went into a dream state when it started crashing. They can't remember the crash itself. Um, they just can remember the aftermath. Uh, it's it just, to me, it's just, I would never want to live it. And I, I think they have so much strength 
to continue to be able to kind of somewhat put that behind them, but also use it in their daily life and not take their life for granted. And I'm just going to kind of close with this on, on this point. Paul Calvo, whose wife died, there's this one moment where he just, and you can tell he means it, man. He says, if you have a good spouse, give them a hug for me. And you could just tell, even though he's since remarried and, you know, he's moved on with his life. Um, he, he had such a tremendous loss. His son even committed suicide in the years after dealt with major depression from it. So that stuff doesn't leave you. And I almost feel like particularly nowadays when there's so much media consumption, like we tend to forget about these big events, like the miracle on the Hudson was a huge moment in our, in our aviation history, right? Thankfully everyone survived it, but there's so many other plane crashes. Thankfully there haven't been as many in recent years in the United States, but there's so many other that are just critical uh, that we know about number one. And we remember the people whose stories there are to be told. And then finally the impact these crashes had so that you and I and everyone else can now fly more safely because of this. Nathan, we appreciate that very much. Folks watching and listening right now to tonight's show, if you're interested in watching this entire documentary, you can find it on the WCNC NBC Charlotte YouTube channel, which we've also linked on our Facebook and YouTube postings for tonight's show. It will be in the show notes for the audio version of tonight's show. And we also just tweeted a link to the documentary if you're joining us live. Speaking of live, before we wrap this up and get to some real-time weather happening here in the Carolinas, including a flash flood warning for Greensboro, let me bring in real quick Chris Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. Chris, you've been talking with some folks who are watching tonight's show live, and you had an interesting tidbit you wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely, Ricky. I was uh, talking to one of my friends. He's actually the air traffic controller over in Columbia at uh, Columbia Metro. But uh, uh, something they also introduced, you know, following uh, this tragic U.S. air accident was the uh, low-level wind shear alert warning system. And uh, what that does is they use a series of ground-based anemometers uh, in conjunction at some airports with the terminal Doppler radars. What that does is it gives the controllers the, the ability to, to get wind shear and microburst alerts, uh, warnings in real time. And just for example, today at Columbia, during a, a quick little pulse thunderstorm, they had a, uh, they had a, a 50 knot loss wind shear alert. And, uh, you know, if any, any plane flies into 50 knot loss, uh, you know, on arrival, that's not going to end well. So, you know, the, these, uh, systems are in place at airports that have precision approaches and, and I'll try not to get too technical into this, but, uh, uh, when you're flying commercial aviation, uh, most of the time the, the the computer's doing all the work until you get right to the ground and the pilots land the plane. But uh, uh, with airports like Columbia, Charlotte, uh, and, and you know Atlanta, bigger airports like that, uh, they have the ability to uh, actually for planes to auto land themselves. Uh, category three ILS approaches, which you can go down to less than 50 feet above the ground with with no human input whatsoever. So airports that have this, uh, those, that, those precision approaches have this uh, warning system in place. And, uh, you know, it's just really interesting, uh, you know, to see some of the, the technology, how it's progressed uh, you know, following US Air uh, 1016 and, uh, you know, things of that nature. But uh, uh, something also worth noting is last year when uh, President Trump came to town, he was supposed to land in Columbia at 6 p.m., but didn't land in Columbia until 6.50. And that was also due to wind shear alerts that day because of a storm passing over the airport. Uh, so they spent uh, 45 minutes in a holding pattern until, you know, the, the wind shear alerts uh, subsided and allowed for a safe landing. Chris, that's so interesting. No one 
is above the weather, not even the President of the United States. Some very interesting tidbits there. Uh, Nathan, thank you again for your time. Brad Penovich, thank you as well. You gentlemen are welcome to hang around, or if you would like wish to jump off, whatever uh, fits your schedules. For folks who are joining us live now just past the 9 o'clock hour, we are going to take a 90-second break right here on the Carolina Weather Group. When we come back, we do have some breaking severe weather news. We're going to check in on Greensboro, North Carolina, where we have a flash flood warning in place. Our break tonight comes to us from the Public News Service, North Carolina. On July 19th of this month, business leaders here in Charlotte got together to discuss climate change and how it could affect their business. So here is this audio report filed to us, and we'll see you back here live in 90 seconds on the Carolina Weather Group. Storms, hurricanes, and flooding have cost cities around the country billions of dollars. And today in Charlotte, business leaders and GOP Congressman Patrick McHenry are meeting to talk about how climate change is impacting the finance and business community. Experts say real estate, infrastructure, and electric utility sectors are especially vulnerable to rising sea levels, record high temperatures, and increasing extreme weather events. Jerry Taylor, who leads the Niskanen Center, says CEOs and shareholders realize what's at stake. About half of the venture capital in the world today is now directed by investors who are demanding climate action. A great majority of the U.S. corporate community is likewise interested in acting uh, to head off the costs uh, associated with climate change. Taylor points out that many companies are investing in clean energy and working to implement climate adaptation strategies. Others are raising awareness about climate change risks with employees and clients and calling for a worldwide policy framework for climate change. Taylor says the business sector can't tackle climate change alone and points out that bipartisan support for climate solutions and policy actions is needed. This is a global problem which requires a global response. And the United States has been the blocking agent in in these initiatives over the last several years, actually for the last several decades, but most markedly since the uh, emergence of the Trump administration. Around 50 North Carolina business leaders are participating in today's discussion. The event was organized by the Nature Conservancy in North Carolina. For Public News Service, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. And there you have it, a report from a little earlier this month uh, talking about uh, climate change and the uh, business impact here in the North Carolina area. Here's a live look right now from WeatherStem, Guilford County Emergency Management in Greensboro, North Carolina. WeatherStem camera provided to us. We have a flash flood warning out here for this area, and let's go right on over to Jared Smith, who has the latest. Jared. Yeah, we've uh, it, it's a pretty soggy night in Greensboro. Uh, we got a we have a graph from the WeatherStem that WeatherStem station there, and. Uh, uh, the gauge is uh, reading over four uh, four inches right now, and and uh, you know that and that's and and the radar is actually much uh, much bleaker. Let me get this on here. We've got reports of potential water rescues going on. We've got um, just a real mess going on in Greensboro. So here's the radar. This is the uh, storm total rate uh, rainfall product, and I'm just highlighting some of these values here. The radar is estimating up to seven inches of rain. Uh, in parts of Greensboro, where a flash flood warning is out, and so um, this has fallen just uh, just this evening, and um, numerous numerous reports of uh, uh, closed roads, flooded roads. Um, it's just a real mess out there. So again, uh, if you're in Greensboro, you don't have to travel. Probably don't want to do that. Um, it's just uh, it's rather treacherous in the area right now. Um, in fact, the flash flood warning uh, was just updated. It continues until 1015. 
uh, for Guilford County. So um, suffice to say, very, very soggy night in Greensboro. Zooming out a little bit, we have another flash flood warning, and this one is um, around Lake Lure in the uh, foothills of North Carolina, and we switch to GSP. Not nearly as impressive looking the storm totals on the radar, but still, you know, th uh, three, uh, three inches plus of rain here. Um, Scotty, I'm not sure what you've heard from uh, out of this area, but we do have a flash flood warning here until 1015 for Western Rutherford, northern, northeastern Henderson County. Um, yeah, Jared, that, that area tends to flood pretty easily. Um, just yeah. looking at some of the stuff in, in NWS chat, I think this is more just precaution than, than anything. Uh, but this area has been ravaged from many flood events over the past several years. And you may recall last year during um, Hurricane Florence, mm -hmm. hearing the flood sirens go off through this little valley where Lake Lure is at. So um, this is uh, more maybe just a precaution than anything. But uh, yeah, still three inches of rain in, in an hour. So it's going to create some flooding. So. I'll add on that yep. a little bit too before we move on. That, um, that is one area that is very landslide prone. Like we talked about last week, the biggest landslide in the last few years in North Carolina occurred right there. Um, inside that flash flood warning. So I think they're trying to be cautious about that as well. Absolutely. Good call on their part there. And um, as we were talking about this, we have a new severe thunderstorm warning just came out here. I'm gonna, just going to pop this open. Um, so this was out at 8.56. Uh, goes until 9.45. And this is near Pickens, Table Rock State Park, moving southeast at 10. This is for portions of uh, north central Pickens County in upstate South Carolina. And, uh, you know, some uh, quarter-size hail, 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts possible. You get these pulse storms. Uh, it's July in South Carolina, almost August. And that get some boundary interactions, and you get a yeah. edit updraft, and, hey, and Jared. that's just the thing that happens. I'm yeah. going to just call your attention. I know you guys internally can't see what's on the air right now, but to everyone at home, you're looking at another weather stem camera, this one from Clemson, South Carolina, which has a perfect view of this approaching thunderstorm on the horizon, and you can just see the lightning there and the depth and the height of this storm. So again, we're watching this severe thunderstorm warning as well in up state south carolina sorry to cut you off jared it's pretty no. epic i'm watching it on my phone right now it's pretty epic <laughs> no yeah no that's that that's awesome and yeah in clemson you're gonna have a good look at it this storm is uh, i'm gonna use a little radar scope tool here it's about 20 miles to the north of clemson there's another round of thunderstorms uh, about 22 miles so kind of along a little line here just uh firing up uh, and moving southeast so clemson you might uh you might be getting a little bit of rain here in a bit if these hang on um down here in charleston we've got flooding issues of our own we had a severe thunderstorm warning earlier for rural parts of south carolina around uh Hampton county allendale jasper county that has since expired these storms have decidedly weakened considerably as the sun goes down but we've got some uh tidal flood issues going on the combination of the black moon and king tides which sounds like a metal band um has uh driven the tide almost to major flood stage here topped out about 7.88 feet in lower low water and that, and when that happens we start seeing a lot of road closures uh, a lot of flooding here um had reports of uh, water flowing under properties earlier in parts of west ashley um had um i've, I've got a photo here that i'm going to pull up real fast um it's surprisingly not a lot of reports tonight which is a little unusual um but it is Wednesday night, and it's hard to say who's doing what. But let me get this photo out real quick, the screen share this. Uh, tweeted by Corey Wissinger. He's down in downtown Charleston. And this is uh, – it's kind of tough to see from here, but that's Lockwood Drive. 
and uh, it looks like it is closed down at Wentworth. Um, so we have um, we have a flooding at the intersection of Haygood and Fishburn. I just got a photo of this, a video of this, kind of watching this right now. It looks like cars are trying to go through it. Guy says pop, possible pipe burst, but no, it is the tide, and we have people driving through it. Bad idea, bad idea. It's um, saltwater, friends. Um, get that car rinsed uh, for sure if you're going to drive through this, but definitely find alternate routes. Coastal Flood Advisory will go until about 11 o'clock, and then uh, we'll just gear up to do it all again tomorrow, Scotty. All right, thank you for that, Jared. Uh, we are battling the, uh, what is it, the Black Moon James? Is that right? Is that what we're... That's what? right. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and I will let people know. I'm just still watching this camera. Uh, in upstate <laughs> South Carolina. We we also, oh, I should mention, have cameras in other locations as well, too, and we're trying to bounce between them as many as we can. But if you're not in an area right now where you're experiencing severe weather and you wanted to go um, look at something outside that is debatably there or not there, uh, I will paraphrase Brad Penovich uh, in his explanation that he provided all of us at work, which is that if you are familiar with a blue moon, which is the second full moon in a month, we are currently experiencing the second new moon in a month and if it's been a while since you learned your moon phases new moon is when the moon is not lit up in the sky it's still there but because it is between us and the sun and all that jazz or i guess we're between it and the sun if i really think about this uh we can't see it so this is the second time it's happened uh this month so it's the second new moon which is rare and then it's additionally rare because the moon's path is bringing it closer to the earth so if you happen to get in a really dark location kind of where I'm sitting now, and you look up, you, you can manage to see just enough of the moon. It'll be nice and large and black, and they call that the, uh, the what do they call it? The super black moon, Scotty? We're making up marketing terms. I don't know who... Super, the super black moon sounds I don't know who me. the PR firm is for <laughs> space, but they do a great job. I do know what's up. We're going to get to your uh, weather, local weather, because we do have the chance of thunderstorms again tomorrow. But before we do that, I want to toss it over to Ricky Matthews. And uh, Ricky, um, we're, August 1st is tomorrow. And once we get into August and definitely into September, we really start to turn our attention to the tropics. And uh, right now, it uh, looks like uh, the National Hurricane Center is monitoring two areas of interest, one a little bit closer to the United States and one that's just rolling off Africa, but that second one uh, may be a bigger story in the coming weeks. So I'll let you take over from there. Yeah, the uh, Weather Service National Hurricane Center here monitoring two areas. One that honestly doesn't look too impressive. It is located just north of Cuba right now. The Hurricane Center giving that just a low chance of development near 0% over the next couple of days, 10% over the next couple of days uh, through five days. But this one down here further south and west that one given a 70% chance of development through the next five days, through the next 48 hours, 0%. Uh, but that's the one we're kind of watching. That's known as 96L. And I want to kind of give you a, a view of the tropics here overall. So this is a uh, look at where all the dust is, where the dry air, the sand, the, the stuff that hurricanes don't like is located. So you've got close to Florida, very limited amount of dust over here in the Lesser Antilles, a good little area of Saharan dust that's come off. Then a large area of Saharan dust here north of the ITCZ, uh, where these kind of waves are coming across right now, right along the, uh, the parallel there. So we've got that one system over Cuba, pretty much just north of Cuba. The second system here 
And the second or third system, I think we're going to have to start monitoring that is just coming off the coast of Africa, a little MCS there. So this is a look at the upper air steering flow. And what I'll point out to you is over here on the right-hand side, you'll notice that there is a big area high pressure, that big Atlantic high setting up. So that's kind of keeping all these storms south right now and allowing them to continue off towards the west. There is some wind shear also associated where that secondary storm, 96L, is located right now. So that's eating into it just a little bit. Here's a view of the satellite across the Atlantic. You can see the Gulf pretty clear, a couple thunderstorms ongoing, but not a whole lot of activity. Uh, some storms across Cuba, Puerto Rico, and also parts of the Dominican Republic. We've got pretty clear Caribbean at this hour, uh, with the exception of a few pop-up storms. And then there's 96L on what will probably be another name's little uh, invest here shortly, just coming off the coast of Africa. A different view of that. This is from the GO-16 satellite. You can see the left-hand storm here, that's 96L on the one we're watching. You can see a teeny bit of swirl perhaps located with it. Uh, it is a broad area of low pressure right now, but a lot of our models are indicating that this system will become better organized in the next couple of days. And as that happens, we do expect the storm to push off towards the west and potentially have some impact on the Bahamas, maybe even the southeast coastline. Not sure about a direct impact right now. It may just be in the form of some waves, but something we certainly should watch, especially as we go into August and September, we get in a more active month. This graphic here from Tropical Tidbits is the GFS Ensemble tracks. You can notice the majority of them pretty tightly clustered here through the next 72 hours, up to 120 hours, still a pretty good agreement uh, as this system starts to strengthen. Then notice how the colors start to change and these paths kind of diverge a little bit as we get uh, beyond 168, five, six, seven, eight days out, all the way to 240 hours out. That's where the variability in the forecast comes into play. A lot of our computer models also suggesting this storm will eventually strengthen to at least a tropical storm, maybe even a low-end Cat 1 or Cat 2 hurricane as we go out over time. The GFS model, pretty excited about it. Uh, the European model, not as excited. So I'm going to walk you through the GFS here real quick. And as we take it off towards the west, let me make a little a couple changes here and see if we can get it to look better. So as you walk this storm off towards the west, there it is, impacting parts of Lesser Antilles and then impacting parts of Puerto Rico. And then making a run at some of the western, or excuse me, eastern areas of the Bahamas as a hurricane. Now, this is the GFS model at hour 240, so take that with a grain of salt. I'll show you the European model as well here, compliments of uh, weathermodels.com. And you notice the European model is not as excited about this storm. It has a tropical storm and then kind of fizzles it out. So some variability still in the models here, Scotty, as we go over the next couple of days. Bottom line is there's a few things out in the tropics to keep our eyes on. Things are starting to heat up, and as we go further into the months of August and September, I expect it to get a little bit busier as well, uh, getting towards that peak of hurricane season around September 10th. Yeah, and speaking of hurricanes, uh, we do want to remind you that uh, we are going to be airing a Hurricane uh, Hugo 30-year special uh, throughout uh, the last 30 years. Uh, we want to hear your stories. So if uh, you would submit us your stories, you could do a video, pictures, maybe even just an email. We'd love to hear from you. You can drop those in our Carolina Weather Group uh, Facebook pages. You can send us a message on, uh, on Facebook or Twitter.
uh, or you can email us, carolinawxgroup at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your stories, uh, see your pictures, videos from Hugo. We're going to try to compile these uh, for a segment during our Hurricane Hugo uh, 30th year special. So we'd love to hear uh, what you experienced. We actually uh, got a few stories already in from last year or from last week's um, uh information that, that we gave to you. So we hope to get some more and uh, we'd love to, to hear about what you experienced. So uh, that is the Hurricane Hugo special. I think it's September 23rd is when we're going to be doing that show. So again, uh, you still have another month, uh, month and a half to get those into us, but uh, the earlier, the better. That way we can make sure that they're included in our special. So we would love to hear from you. So uh, it's easy to submit us uh, an email or uh, drop us uh, a, a message in Facebook or Twitter and we uh, will add those to the story we've already got so we'd love to have uh, have that from you so uh talking about the weather uh we did have some strong to severe thunderstorms roll through the uh, carolinas today and that looks to be the case um for the next couple of days i'm going to toss it to chris jackson who will give you the latest for uh the midlands and upstate of south carolina chris yes scotty uh so today across the midlands we got a few pop-up thunderstorms early this afternoon and at the airport, we, we got up to uh, 94 degrees today before that uh, thunderstorm came in and ruined the show. But, uh, uh, yeah, we got uh, six-tenths of uh, inch rain recorded at uh, Columbia Metro today. And going for a low tonight, probably around 71, 72 degrees. Uh, maybe some of those clouds keep us a little warmer. And uh, tomorrow, uh, again, in the, in the low to uh, really 92, 93 degrees range. Uh, and over the next few days with a, a, a trough position off trough west, Rain chances are going to be pretty likely with afternoon storms each day, um, 50 to 70 percent. Take your pick from Thursday through Saturday, and then rain chances diminish by Sunday, maybe down to about 30 percent or so. But uh, the something worth noting: the WPC, the Weather Prediction Center, uh, for tomorrow and Friday has uh, the upstate tomorrow under under a marginal risk for uh, flash flooding, and on Friday has most of South Carolina outside of the Low Country. Uh, under a marginal risk for flash flooding. And this is just going to be thanks to, uh, you know, basically this this slow storm motion that we encounter uh, in the summertime. You know, you, we can see rainfall rates in, in two to two and a quarter inch per hour uh, ballpark-ish. And uh, most of the flash flood guidance is around two, two to two and a half inches, depending on your location. So it's something to watch. But uh, yeah, for the next few days, just pre uh, be prepared for the afternoon thunderstorms and especially um, uh some heavier rainfall with possible flash flood and um, kick it back to you, Scotty. All right. Thank you for that. Chris will uh, toss it down to Jared Smith, who is in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Jared, how's the weather looking for uh, the low country? You know, all good things must come to an end. And uh, one of those good things was the beautiful weather we've had over the last week. Um, it just low humidity. Like you couldn't believe it. Like you couldn't believe it was July. Um, but yes, August is going to feel like August. Uh, we have a nice little slug of tropical moisture that's going to move through over the next couple days. It's going to be a bit raining at times. Uh, highest topping route, about low 90s. Um, heat indices uh, not getting too far out of whack because uh, thunderstorms will initiate and uh, rain on, on some of you. And some of you will not see it every day. And then some people will see it. It's it's summer. I mean, it's still, it's still summer. And so we've got a few days of that. And then, uh, you know, Pretty quiet. We're going to watch the tropics a little bit, just keep an eye on things, but, uh, you know, just to make sure that nothing misbehaves, but nothing too concerning there. Um, and uh, king tides continue this week, uh, so we'll have a tidal flooding possible every night through the next uh, few days uh, as we get around this black moon. 
<laughs> and uh, Jared, uh, you know, I was surprised to see the GM out that late. You know, normally when we see tropical systems, it's always bullseye on Charleston. So at least GFS right now doesn't th th think that's the case. So that's good news for you all, or maybe it's not because. <laughs> you know, uh, at the end of the day, like it, it at the end of the day, all this, it, it's that it, we're getting to that time of year. We're starting to get into the peak of the season. And so, you know, just, you know, August 1, great checkpoint time. Take a look at your hurricane kit. Take a look at your insurance. Take a look at all those things. Because, you know, while it's been quiet and we love quiet, um, you know, it keeps all of our reserves of various anti-anxiety uh, tools uh, for all of us meteorologists. You know, that's, that's a good thing. But but it, don't let that lure you into complacency. The season can just go off like that. Uh, we saw that in 2017. We saw that in 2018. So... The easiest thing to do, just make sure you're ready now. Nobody out running around getting bread and milk. Plenty of bread, plenty of milk, you know, <laughs> plenty of supplies out there for you. So build your kit now, and um, hopefully nothing happens. But if it does, be glad you did. Definitely. So, and speaking of North Carolina, the weather up here, kind of carbon copy of what Chris and uh, Jared were talking about. We are seeing that that trough off. So we're going to expect to see showers and thunderstorms at least through Saturday. Um, like uh, Chris was mentioning, there is a marginal risk of some excessive rainfall in North Carolina, both uh, on a Thursday and Friday. So watch the uh, potential for some flooding. Uh, these showers are really slow moving. We've seen it tonight with Greensboro. I want to give you an update about Greensboro in just a second. But uh, slow moving thunderstorms could create uh, torrential rainfall, vivid lightning, gusty winds. We could even see a few storms uh, produce hail today. And we could see that uh, for the next few days as we continue to monitor uh, these uh, storms that move through the area. I do want to say, just I uh, was monitoring the National Weather Service uh, in Raleigh. They're the area that covers the Greensboro area. And one of the meteorologists, Meteorologist uh, just said, FYI, Triad Media, the river gauge on north of Buffalo Creek at Church Street in Greensboro, has just reached 17.37 feet. That appears to be the new record. Uh, the old record was 16.4 feet. So you can see um, the record rainfall um, happening right now in Greensboro with some flash flooding. If you go over to our good friend Tim Buckley's Twitter feed, uh, you can see all kinds of uh, videos and pictures of people tweeting Tim and uh, showing you the streets that are underwater um, from the flooding in Greensboro. Melissa, I know you've been monitoring the uh, the, the Greensboro uh, weather stem uh, rain gauge. Any uh, updates, uh, any finals from, from that area? So the current rainfall um, right before we, we came on was about four and, four and a quarter inches from that. Most of that, I'm just doing a double check just to make sure. Yeah, four and a quarter inches. So it looks like the heaviest rainfall is actually past um, through the area, but the rain rates during that particular time were averaging about anywhere from two and a half to three inches an hour from, from that particular station. So, you know, that much rain in such a short period of time, I mean, the rain started roughly about 630 and most of that rain, I mean, two, about two inches of that rain fell in an hour and then it just continued to get worse. So, um, you know, the, again, the, there's a reason why that flash flood, flash flood warning is out. It's going to stay out. 
you know, as Jared said earlier, if you, you don't have any reason to be on the road, don't be out on the road today. Um, especially right now with what's going on with that. And I'm not going to lie. I'm still mesmerized by the feed of all of the lightning from the storm in, in Columbia. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty neat watching the storm from a distance. 110 lightning strikes in the last 30 minutes, according to that weather stem equipment. Wow. There. That's well, James, crazy. James, we will close out with that video, but I do want to mention next week we have um, Eli Jackson. He is, uh, works for the National Weather Service, and he is the um, director of the Haz, uh, Hazard Simplification Program Leader, excuse me. And uh, so myself and James and I think a few other of us, uh, we were on a conference call last week, and uh, this is uh, some new information that's coming out that uh, we may be starting to see come into effect over the next year or so from the National Weather Service. They're going to kind of clean up the watch warning advisory information. So next week, Eli is going to be our guest, and he'll kind of give you a little heads up of what the direction may look like as we go into the next year or so. So a very interesting show uh, for next week with Eli Jackson. And then the week after that, we have Greg Carbon. He is the uh, leader at the uh, Weather Prediction Center. Uh, Chris was just referring to their excessive rainfall outlook. Well, Greg leads everything at the uh, the Weather Prediction Center, and he's going to be our guest uh, the following week. So we have uh, two really big-time guests coming up over the next couple of weeks here at the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, we still have about five shows open for uh, this year, and then we're going to start planning for 2020. So if you have any suggestions, uh, maybe some top guests that you would like us uh, to have on the show, please let us know. Send us an email and you can message us on Twitter or Facebook. Let us know who you would like to see. Uh, we will work uh, hard to try to get them on our show. But again, we have five open shows for the rest of this year and uh, we're already booking for 2020. So let us know those suggestions. So with that, I think we're going to close out with the uh, camera at Clemson from Weather Sim. Enjoy uh, this evening thunderstorm and uh, stay safe out there this weekend. Uh, if you come across any of these uh, stalled uh, thunderstorms, watch out for some localized flooding. And we will see you back here next Wednesday night for another edition of the Carolina Weather Group. Have a great weekend, everyone.